Welcome to the Freshman Foundation Podcast, helping you make the jump from high school athletics to the collegiate level and beyond with your host, Michael Huber. Hey everyone, I'm Mike Huber, founder and CEO of the Freshman Foundation. Welcome to the Freshman Foundation Podcast, a podcast specifically geared toward the transition from high school to college athletics. My guest in this episode is Vanessa Shannon, Director of Mental Performance for the University of Louisville and Norton Sports Health since October 2015. Prior to arriving in Louisville, Dr. Shannon spent two years as a mental conditioning coach at IMG Academy, where she worked with the girls' soccer and basketball programs. She also coordinated psychological testing preparation for IMG's NFL Combine Training Program and served as a vision training coach for the Academy's Major League baseball off-season training program. From 2005 to 2013, Dr. Shannon worked in various academic capacities as a practitioner and a researcher in the university setting. Please welcome Vanessa to the podcast. Hi, Vanessa. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks. Thanks for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm excited. Yeah. Happy New Year. I guess to get started, why don't you just tell everybody a little bit more about your background uh, as a mental performance coach? Sure. It's a long story, but um, I'll try to shorten it. Um, I was a collegiate student athlete, so I played volleyball at Rice University and at the time thought I wanted to go into uh, sports medicine, be an orthopedic surgeon, and just had some timely things happen in my life that sort of all aligned to point me in the direction of performance psychology. Um, And at the time, coming out of undergrad, I had no clue where to look or what to do, so I was lucky enough to have some mentors. Did my master's degree actually at Kansas State University in exercise psychology. It was supposed to be in sports psychology, and there was a, a shift right when I got there. So that actually has served me well because I learned a lot about behavior change. I use that certainly in my daily work with um, student athletes here at the University of Louisville and our coaches and things like that. So yeah, after graduate school, I went into academia for a period of time and um, my passion really fell in student athlete and coach interactions. So I had the opportunity to shift to IMG and then was lucky enough um, to create a relationship or walk into sort of an existing relationship uh, with the University of Louisville during my time there and ended up here in a full-time position. So I'm really um, honored and privileged to be serving our student-athletes as an in-house, you know, in the athletic department provider of mental performance services. So it's an incredible place to be, I would imagine, in terms of the just the depth and the breadth of the athletic department, athletic program at Louisville. So can you just talk about a little bit about just where you're at today and kind of what your day-to-day responsibilities are there uh, in mental performance? Absolutely. So I've been here, this is my sixth year. I'm starting my sixth year in the middle of my sixth year. And every year, really, my day-to-day responsibilities have sort of evolved. Being one person serving 23 teams and 650 student-athletes. I do work in conjunction with Kate O'Brien, who's a licensed clinical social worker, and she's our director of mental health, and Dr. Chris Peters, who's a psychiatrist. And so they serve our students athletes clinical needs. But each year I've kind of tried to change what I'm doing a little bit to be able to accommodate more student athletes and better serve our teams. Um, So now the model that we're working with as much as possible, I'm doing a lot of team level delivery to try and kind of cast a wide net. Um, And obviously that's going to serve some of our teams better than it's going to serve other teams just in terms of meeting needs. Um, And then I do do individual consultations with student athletes. I meet with our coaching staffs a lot to try and do kind of some indirect direct consulting through them. Um, And they're very open and trusting of that work. 
Um, I also rely heavily on our support staff. So I work with our support staff, talk to our support staff, meet with our support staff um, on a daily basis for any given team um, because they truly are sports medicine, sports nutrition, sports performance, the eyes and ears um, who are there daily when I can't be there daily. So a day in the life of me varies greatly, but it includes many of those things. In addition to practice and competition, sitting on the bench, standing in the dugout, being there so that obviously they know I care and they care about what I'm saying. So I think what you're saying is, is that you figured out a way to clone yourself so you can be in more than one place at once. <laughs> I've attempted that unsuccessfully. I've instead realized that um, I have a lot of phenomenal staff here um, that are willing to kind of learn the language and speak the language and use it in the work that they do daily with our athletes. So I'm, I'm very, very grateful to that. Well, I think that's really, you know, for some, for somebody's in the field, I think that that's a really interesting thing to like learn more about, right? Like, so there has to be a lot of education from you to them and a lot of delegation in a lot of ways, right? Like you can't be hands-on or as hands-on maybe as you want to be all the time. You have to rely on other people to then take that information and pass it down the line. I mean, how do you find that within such a big and high-powered athletic department? Yeah, it's a great question. Really, it was about kind of determining the nuances within each individual program and what would best fit their needs and meet their needs. Um, and certainly for some of our programs, um, it's better for me to provide education to the coaches and the support staff and allow them to kind of be boots on the ground, so to speak. Um, and then with others, you know, the preference, whether it be of the coach, like some of our coaches want me to be the person speaking about these things and they want to integrate it into their practice plans and they want to integrate some of what's going on, but they really want me to kind of stand as the expert in the mental space. So it's taken some time to kind of navigate which teams, which model works best for, but I think we've kind of like finally gotten to a space where we figure that out. And again, I'm just super appreciative of our coaching staffs and our support staff, in particular sports performance, our strength and conditioning coaches, and the work that they do with our student athletes, because they have so many more touch points with our student athletes than I do on a daily basis. And so they do a lot of professional development within their um, unit and department and have invited me into the fold in their roundtables and things like that to provide some context and some education for them so that they can, again, kind of speak the language. You made, I think you made reference, you know, in, in your intro about your experiences at Rice as an athlete when you're in college. And I did take the opportunity to listen to at least some of uh, a podcast recording that you did with uh, Dr. Sindra Kampoff, who's also another highly respected professional in the sport psychology field. And you talked more about that. I thought it was really interesting about how that inspired you or how that affected you. Can you just talk a little bit more as was at the time, like your experience in, in college and how that affected you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I joke with people when they ask me how I got into the field, I always say, oh, I, I wasn't very good at the mental game and I couldn't fix myself. So, you know, I figured I could help other people be better at it. And the irony really is I actually was way more attuned to what was going on in my head than maybe a lot of high school athletes are. Um, and I can thank one of my dear friend's moms who pointed it out to me at one point when she realized I was kind of my, my own worst critic. So in high school, even, I remember paying attention to the thoughts I was having and how they were influencing my performance. And, you know, I, I may have shared this um, in the other podcast, but I can remember specifically I was struggling with my serve and my dad used to sit at the back of the gym and he'd be back there 
there and he was convinced it was my toss. And so every time I went to serve, he'd go, good toss. And it just drove me insane for a period of time until I sort of embraced it and realized that he actually had the winning ticket there, right? If I would just kind of focus on winning my toss, then the rest of my serve would be okay. And so I think I really parlayed that into my college experience and was able to be maybe a step ahead of some of um, my teammates in kind of wrangling my thoughts and being able to use them in an effective way to influence my performance. And then um, I experienced a pretty significant injury, an unusual volleyball injury um, at not a great time in my career and had to kind of transition out of um, my career as a player and served as a student coach for a year. And through that kind of allowed me a different lens to reflect on, on student athletes and their experience and the challenges they face and the demands they face. And so then just around the same time, it happened that we had a, an industrial and organizational psychologist who had done some work with um, a pitching staff on in one of the major league organizations come and talk to one of my elective classes. And, and I thought, wow, you know, something that I never really wanted to do. I think I mentioned this in the other podcast. My parents used to always say, you're a really good listener. You're good at prob- you know, problem solving. You should be a psychologist. And I was like, I don't want to listen to people's problems for the rest of my life. And, and But you know, what I realized is that I could bridge these two things. And I think having the experience as a student athlete, I don't think everybody has to have it to do good work with athletes and with student athletes. But I do think that having that experience as a student athlete And seeing myself sort of adopt um, these strategies and tools helps me at times better translate that to our student athletes here. For sure. And I, I, you know, I think that one of the things that we're, we're drilled with when we're going through our training is, is to be able to be empathic, right? To be empathetic, to be able to put ourselves in other people's shoes. Sometimes it takes having that experience, but also it's just having going through adversity, right? Like being able to say and look at somebody and say, hey, I know what you're going through. Like I can help you through this, right? Versus saying, hey, go ahead. You can figure this out on your own, which is something you talked about in that other podcast, which I was really fascinated by, right? That ability to ask for help or feel like you can ask for help and not have to do everything on your own, which I imagine is something you see quite a bit with college level athletes, particularly high level ones who come in and think, hey, I got this. And then they get there and they're lost, but they don't know how to get themselves out of it by asking for help. Absolutely. And and I don't know whether I mentioned this in the other podcast, but another piece of my college experience that sort of influenced me in the way that you're particularly speaking is I lost a very good friend of mine. Um, And he died my freshman year. And I spent a year refusing to ask for help. I spent a year thinking the right thing to do was to be strong and kind of battle it myself. And over time, realized that the right thing to do was ask for help when I needed it. Um, And so certainly that allows me, I think, to connect with our student athletes and convince them maybe more quickly that asking for help is a strength and not a weakness. Um, But I, I definitely think you hit the nail on the head when you look at a place like the University of Louisville and the caliber of student athletes that we get as they come in their first years here, uh, many of them have never needed to ask for help before. Um, And definitely they've come up in kind of the sport ethic and this win at all costs and mentality where asking for help is seen as not a good thing. It's seen as a weakness or a detriment. Um, So we battle against that still a little bit and, and we're trying to kind of expedite the process of convincing them to ask for help when they need it. Yeah. What are some of the things that you might do to help them to kind of come towards you in that respect, right? To get them to open their eyes and say, like, like, I really want to ask for help. Or is it just an organic process where they have to kind of just figure it out on their own? Yeah, I think it depends on the athlete. Um, Certainly, you know, I think it's probably here 
uh, maybe like 70, 30, I would argue. We've really worked hard. And when I say we, I mean myself and Kate O'Brien and, and Dr. Peters, as well as our coaching staffs and our administration to just make mental performance and mental health part of the Louisville way, part of something that we do here. So, you know, the minute that athletes step on campus, myself and Kate are in front of them and talking to them. And so some of them, you know, there's kind of that convincing piece. They see us around me more than Kate because the things they're talking talking about with her, they may be perceived to be more sensitive, but I'm at practice. I'm on the sidelines. I'm on the pool deck. I travel with our teams. And so I think FaceTime, that helps with the organic piece of it. But I think the other thing that helps honestly is our student athletes, because it's part of the way we do things, are willing to share their experiences with the people around them. So, you know, when I first got here, the biggest referral source for me was coaches and athletic trainers. And now I would say the biggest referral source for me is teammates and selves. So people self-referring. So I think that's a, you know, it's a testament to the work that we've done and that our coaching staff um, staffs have done to really kind of normalize um, seeking help. I mean, what, what I think you've just described is being able to really build a culture, right? A culture where it's not only acceptable, but it's also, it's sought out, right? Where they're saying, hey, you should talk to Dr. Shan and you should talk to Vanessa because she can help you, right? Getting that at the athlete level is really like the stamp of approval, right? Because if one athlete says it to another, you know, then it's like, well, okay, I know I can trust this person versus if it comes from above, well, is there an ulterior motive, right? Is somebody like, you know, why are they asking me to do this? Or like, do they think, you know, they're trying to test me or something, you know, versus the athletes just, they're trying to help each other. Absolutely. And I think too, um, the way that we speak about it here in terms of it being more of a, you know, I think you can slip into the medical model, right? You can be a treatment source. You can be a person who's there for people when they need help. But we always talked about this at IMG and I've tried to stay true to this in my career. You don't have to be bad to get better, right? So that's really the way in which we frame it. We frame it in terms of mental skills and mental performance and being able to perform at your best when your best is required. And so we focus more on the preparation than we do on the solving of the problem. Certainly that has to happen at times. Um, but I definitely think in the last five years, we've seen a shift as well there where student athletes are more often coming in because they have questions about how they can raise their game compared to coming in because they have a problem with their game at the moment. That's, I mean, that's something that always comes up, right? That sort of like Band-Aid model of like, we're going to try to fix a problem versus no, you always need to be working on this. You always need to be getting better. How do I expand my game or how do I reach my potential versus like, how do I fix, you know, these little, you know, these little holes in my game, right? So that, that's a great thing, but just the same, right? If you have 650 athletes in the program that you're responsible for, there have to be, right? Varying levels of motivation from one to 650, right? So can you just talk about sort of like what that looks like, you know, sort of the buckets of like, and I'm going to oversimplify here, right? But there's probably a handful that say, I don't need this. I don't want to be bothered. There's some that are like, you know, hyper kind of focused and like go-getters, like I want to do whatever I can. And then there's probably a bunch in the middle that are sort of the top of the bell curve. Like what's that look like from a motivational standpoint, like at the individual level? Yeah. I, I mean, I think you probably hit it dead on in that there are these three buckets and I don't think it's over 
oversimplifying and I think it's pretty accurate and <laughs> it probably is honestly does play out to be the rule of thirds a bit, right? So we have, you know, kind of 33 point whatever percent of them come in and, and don't think they need any help, you know, 30, the other some odd percentage come in and, and maybe see it useful, but aren't as willing to buy in consistently. And then you have this other third who want it and they want to be able to do it, and they want to consume as much information as possible. And I think what you really see, honestly, is that transition throughout their time here, right? So again, a lot of first years are going to come to campus having been the best athlete on their high school team or at their high school club, maybe in their state, and they're going to have found a way to be successful on typically talent and work. And in the space of work, it's going to be physical, technical, technical, not a lot of mental work. And so, or nutrition or some of the stuff we're doing in the weight room or the recovery stuff from a sports medicine perspective. And so it's a bit about convincing them, okay, this is something that you maybe didn't need to be successful at that level, but you do need to be successful at this level. And so I would say that face time and and building that rapport is totally the currency of trust. And so I think that helps too. One, it's a progression over time from first year to second, third and fourth year of realizing okay, I do need to do more here to be successful than I did in high school and club. But it's also a matter of they just become more comfortable with seeking the service because they see others around seeking them that service. So if you had to put, if you had to put a guess on it, if you had a guess out of all those athletes that come in every year, right? The freshmen who come in, could you say like, could you guess at what percentage of them have been exposed to some sort of mental coaching before they get to the university? Yeah. So we, we try to do intakes with as many of our first years as possible. We split them up between Kate and myself um, and just spend 10 or 15 minutes with them or whether that's getting in front of them as a team and being able to ask that question, raise your hand. How many of you have had interaction with um, some type of sports psychology or performance psychology professional before or mental skills coach? It's a little bit hard to estimate only because I think there are so many names for it now that sometimes I'll say something and they won't raise their hand. And then two months later, they'll come in and ask me a question. They'll say, oh, I worked with this person. And it was basically someone like me. I would say it's probably like 5 to 10%. It's not a lot right? It's not a lot. But I think also that's expected because um, the field is still growing. Now, if you were to ask the question instead, how many of you have consulted some type of resource about your mental game? Not just a human being or a professional, but a book, a podcast, you watch some videos, you know, something like that, then that number goes up significantly. I think it's much more, right? It's much more uh, ubiquitous. It's out there. I think people are much more aware that it exists and that there are resources. But yeah, that one-on-one, say, mental coaching, even at the team level, I think is pretty, pretty, still pretty uncommon, which, you know, I think over time it will become more common, especially as athletics continue to become, you know, grow as, you know, pretty significant business in the United States uh, and abroad. So because the focus of the conversation here is about kind of that transition from high school to college, can you just talk a little bit about some of the, like, what are some of the most common, if there are common kind of challenges that you see your freshmen have coming into to Louisville? Yeah. And I think the most common things that I see and we see kind of collectively are not necessarily going to surprise people. 
Um, but they might surprise people because I'm at the University of Louisville and we have a really competitive athletic department across the board, you know, across all of our sports. Um, so we do get high talent, highly competitive, you know, high work ethic um, athletes. And I think sometimes people think, oh, that will make it easier for them to facilitate that transition. Um, but I think we, you know, we get a lot of big fish, small pond. Now they're small fish, big pond. I don't say small fish, big pond. I say instead average size fish, big pond you know, where they, again, they used to be the best. Now they're one of the best. Um, so that certainly can make the transition difficult. I think the other big thing that we see is, you know, a lot of our student athletes come from spaces again, where they were very talented. They worked very hard. They contributed significantly in the value to their team. And so they got a lot of praise from their coaches when they get here. And I have this conversation oftentimes with our first years, our coaches have between eight and 20 hours with you, depending on where you are in season. If their job is to win, they have to help you get better. If they have to help you get better, they're not going to spend much of those eight or 20 hours telling you how awesome you are. They're going to spend it instead telling you what you need to do to get better. And that can be kind of taxing on confidence, I think, because many student athletes, as we see them transition from high school to college, if we think of confidence like a currency that we earn, they're used to earning that confidence through what they hear a lot instead of what they do or through how they feel instead of what they do. So the coaches can contribute significantly to their confidence until we help them understand that they're really the owner of that confidence and they can earn it through the things that they do on a daily basis. So I think those two things would probably be the biggest challenges. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, when I started to kind of think of this idea, right, this concept of what's this transition going to look like for these athletes, big fish in a small pond is, is exactly the phrase that can't, comes to mind, right? Like you're the big man or big woman on campus. Everybody tells you how wonderful you are. You have very little competition, right? The best player in my school, in my county, my state, whatever. And then you show up and you're, I like the way you put it, an average fish, right? You're not a small fish. You're just as good as everybody else. You're not special anymore necessarily. So I, I would imagine from an ego perspective, that has to be a little bit challenging for a lot of the athletes, particularly the ones who are motivated by rewards and praise and things and not motivated simply by kind of internal drive. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the other thing that contributes to that too, that I didn't necessarily mention, but I'm sure everyone kind of considers is if you are that person, if you are the best player in your club team or your high school team, and your goal and your motivation at that level is to get to this level, it's very easy to become very egocentric, you know, and the people around you are sort of allowing that to happen. And we will even find that some of our best athletes come here and they potentially have a lower sport IQ or they have bad habits, they cut corners. And a lot of that, I think, comes from the fact that they were able to overcome those things. And so coaches potentially didn't focus on fixing them, right? Just kind of let them be, let them do their thing. They're talented enough to get to the next level. But when your focus is, I'm trying to get a Division One scholarship, I want to play for a top 20 team or whatever it might be, it's very easy to become me-oriented. And then you get here and it's a real shock to that ego um, because, you know, and I talk about this all the time with our student athletes, but Louisville is 10 letters. I've counted it 5,000 times to make sure I'm right. And so we talk about like those 10 letters and what they mean to you and what you're willing to do to protect them. So it's not about you anymore. It's about those 10 letters. Um, and that can certainly be a shock to them. That's interesting. I don't know if this is the opposite of that, but I have heard this from high, from college athletes 
who came from high school and got a shot coming to college, the level of competitiveness, that idea that you're fighting for playing time and that when they were in high school, everybody was buddy-buddy and we were all friends, you come to college and then all of a sudden somebody's trying to take your job or wants your minutes and then it's not as, maybe not as collegial. I mean, is that something that athletes struggle with is too, with too? Like that idea of I have to actually fight for playing time. Maybe somebody doesn't like me because I'm taking their spot. Like the, how often does that come up? Yeah, I would say that comes up often. And it, you know, you would think, oh, it's more common in team sports. But really here at this level, everything is a team, right? So even in golf, you're qualifying, you're trying to fight for one of the spots. In tennis, you're trying to get to the one position. So um, in rowing, you're trying to be in the V8 or whatever boat you perceive the most valuable. And certainly that role can be can affect people, right? The, the change in the role and the fact that, and I think you, you bring up a really great point, you know, you were the best, you were praised a lot. Now everybody is the best. Everybody's praised a lot. You used to be able to maintain that cohesion, the social cohesion, maybe with your teammates, because you were so much better than everybody else. So there was nobody fighting you for your position or for your playing time or whatever it is. And now there's a total shift, you know? And so, and you do see that you see, we talk a lot about the influence of role acceptance and role satisfaction on cohesion and on being able to maintain that cohesion. And it's, challenging, you know, more challenging for some athletes than for others. I reference oftentimes, you know, Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan and this notion that effectively, as it's reported to us, Phil Jackson had to have a conversation with Scottie Pippen at some point and explain to him, you'll never be Michael Jordan. You can go somewhere else and you can be their franchise player and their best player. You can stay here and you can win a bunch of championships with us. And and I think it's still a challenge for our student athletes, for some of them at least, to accept that role because either they don't love it or it's really not what they thought they signed up for. Um, but that absolutely can can impact them. Well, that's interesting. I, I, I don't think I would have anticipated asking this question, but it seems to me, at least in the high profile sports, like the footballs and basketballs, ability to transfer seems to be, it's a lot easier to transfer nowadays. At least that's what I perceive from the outside. Is that an issue you're dealing with more with athletes who are thinking about, well, I didn't sign up for this, get me out of here. And you're trying to kind of talk with athletes who want to transfer out of the program. Yeah. And I'm, uh, don't quote me on this. This is not scientific data, but it is my guess based on my experience, you know, at Rice and then being involved in the athletic department at Kansas State and Tennessee when I was in grad school, even, you know, Tennessee Wesleyan, where I was first is a small NAI school, but very competitive athletically. And then West Virginia compared to now here, I do think it's easier to transfer. And I think it's far more common. Um, in fact, you know, my nephews are 13 and 16 and great athletes and thinking about the opportunity and trying to earn the opportunity to play college athletics. And my brother actually married one of my teammates from college. So my sister-in-law is a good friend of mine and teammate. My brother played college volleyball. And we talk all the time about like, how proud I am to wear rice gear still to this day and walk around and have that loyalty to my college and my team and things like that. And unfortunately, I think it's just the landscape of athletics now and college athletics. I think there are a lot more transfers and there's less of that loyalty. And that's not a criticism of the student athletes in any way. I think, again, it's sort of the, it starts with the structure and organization of youth sport and junior sport right now, where there are so many more opportunities, right? When I was growing up in Southern California, 
California, there was one club volleyball program within 20 miles of me. And if I wanted to play for another, I would have to drive an hour, right? And people are going to hear me say that, student athletes, and think I was raised in like the 50s. That was in the 90s, people, okay? <laughs> but, um, but now it's, it's like just in Orange County, California, where I grew up, there's three, four, five club programs. So if I'm not having a good experience over here, I can just go over here instead. And that choice, I think, um, creates less loyalty, right? It kind of creates, again, it reinforces that egocentrism of it's about me and it's about my best interests. That's a really, it's a really interesting point. And I have young children who are in their early, you know, kind of preteens. And, but we already see it at this age, you know, with so many clubs, right? If they're not happy with where they're at, whether they're not happy with the coach, they're not happy with the team, the performance, there's really nothing keeping them there, right? They can jump to another club very easily and it's just normal. It's like, that's the culture of sport now. And that's, I mean, it sounds like it's just something that you've got to figure out how to deal with, right? Versus saying like, oh, I'm going to resist it or saying it doesn't, you know, this can't be. I, I was just curious and sort of came up out of nowhere. But the question I did want to ask is kind of the segue to going back to what we were talking about is for those who come in as freshmen, what are some of the things that the most successful successful freshmen or those who are transitioning most successfully, what are they, what are they doing? Like what types of actions are they taking to make that transition as uh, successful as possible for themselves? Yeah, I think the ones who have the most successful transitions are the ones who kind of write that ship the soonest, right? So they sort of, they buy in, um, they understand fairly quickly that it's, it has to be a win-win situation. So it has to be about them being successful and the team being successful. They're coachable, they're proactive, right? So they reach out and ahead of time, they ask permission rather than forgiveness. Um, and again, these are a lot of things that maybe they never had to do before and they're not super comfortable doing. So ultimately, all of those things come down to one thing for me, which is I think the most successful transitions happen with athletes that are willing to get uncomfortable more quickly. And there's a quote, excellence requires discomfort. And we talk about that a lot. But I, I think, you know, one of our kind of tenets of the cardinal mindset is welcome discomfort. Um, and I think it has to start there. It has to start with them realizing, okay, I don't know everything. I don't have everything figured out. Um, let me step into this uncomfortable space and be willing to seek the assistance of the people around me. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that obviously to somebody like me, that makes sense, but I was sort of, I think I was envisioning you being in a room with, you know, 25 athletes on a team. And I was thinking about how many athletes are going nodding their head. Yes. Versus shaking their head no like what's that like like when you're talking about oh embrace discomfort or be okay with you know make you know adversity and all that stuff they're like do they like lean into you or do they just go mm. yeah it, it it takes a minute for them to lean. <laughs> right. it's a very slow lead in yeah no i mean i think some of them many of them come here and they want to do whatever it takes right and we talk a lot about willingness here we talk about the fact that everybody wants to win like there's no space where people don't want to win. Everybody wants to win. The difference maker is, are you willing to do what it takes to win? And I think we do our best in the recruiting process. And, and I've worked with our coaches and our coaches have worked very hard to develop questions and observations and things that they can do to try and identify people that may lean in more quickly, right? So, you know, when I first got here, I kind of blew up the recruiting model a little bit because I said in swimming, do we want the state champion or do we want the person that chased down the state champion over four years and got closer to their best time? 
um, because the state champion has never had to chase anybody down. And if we put them in a pool against another state champion and at the turn they come out behind, are they going to be able to chase that person down? And I think our coaches had been stuck in a model, which is makes perfect sense, this competitive model of we need the best to be the best. And I, over time, have helped them understand you all are some of the best because you can teach people to be better. So let's look for these things that maybe we can't make better in four years or we can't improve as easily in four years. Let's bring them in and have you make them a better basketball player, a better golfer or whatever it is. So the lean in is a little bit slow at times. Um, and, you know, a lot of times I can convince them to do it with other examples of adversity of people who they look up to in their sport, you know, that they see on TV who've gone through adversity. But the other challenge I think we face is, is we can sometimes create adversity for them to get them comfortable, right? Raise the demands and practice and things like that. But some of that adversity is just happenstance. It's just what you, you know, what your life was like, right? So, you know, my, my nephews are both football players and baseball players. And I talk a lot about JJ Watt and his perseverance and his quote, success isn't owned, it's leased and rent is due every day. And, and then my nephew looked at me and he said, so are you saying that I have to go to one school, come home from that school, sell pizza on the weekends to earn money to go to a new school. And that's how I get what I want. It's like, well, you can't, you know, you can't script that. So, um, so some of the adversity is, is just happenstance, but we do try and help them become comfortable with the uncomfortable. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, it's something, the motivation is something I sort of talk to about my athlete clients all the time, right? Like, well, what do you want? Like sort of what you described, right? What you talked about in the podcast with Sinjer, right? Kind of attacking the gap, right? What do you want? What's your goal? And what are you willing to do to get there? And if I ask an athlete, hey, what do you want? Well, I want to do this. Are you willing to do what it takes to get there? What are the things you're going to do? And they just look at me and go, you know, they make a face at me. And I'm like, well, you're not going to get to where you want to go unless you do something. And I said, if you don't want to do it, that's okay. Just understand that there's a consequence to that, right? If you don't do the work, someone's going to pass you, right? And I, I like that. I liked what you said about the recruiting model, because I think that that's important, right? You're going in and understanding motivational styles, right? Motivational. Are you getting the intrinsically motivated athlete who's maybe a little bit lower on the ability level, but they're going to work to reach their potential? Or are you going to take the superstar who kind of has a hard time when they're challenged? And I think that that's really interesting. And I would imagine it's like a portfolio almost, right? Of assets. I mean, I hate to talk about it that way, but you're kind of you're kind of diversifying, right? You want the five-star athlete who can play at the highest level, but maybe you want a three-star athlete who could be a five-star athlete by the time they're a senior. And you're constantly balancing that portfolio of like, I need a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of that to get to where we want to go as a program. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a great analogy, right? You, and you do do that. And, and certainly there are things that come up and there are skills and strategies and tools that maybe an athlete lacks, but we know that we can kind of increase their ability more quickly than other skills and strategies and, and tools. Um, and you will, you know, you, you need the talent, right? Every program in the country that's been successful in any sport has a baseline level of talent. So you need that. But there are also these intangibles that we hear 
so many um, Major League Baseball organizations and NFL teams and collegiate programs talking about. And I think you have to be able to kind of diversify your assets. That's a great way of putting it. One of the things I heard you talk about, which I, this is in my philosophy of practice, so I kind of jumped out in me, is kind of working with the whole person, right? The, the holistically looking at the person first or as much as you do as a performer, as an athlete, right? So what does that look like in the program, Louisville, for you, like in terms of the way you do your work day to day, in terms of putting that person kind of across all spectrums versus just saying, hey, we got to get the most out of the athlete? Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, a lot where I've worked with our coaches and our teams in kind of helping them understand that piece too, to look at one another. Coaches look at our student athletes, but student athletes look at their teammates as whole people. Um, And it really goes back to something you mentioned earlier, which is just empathy and understanding. You know, we can create more change for an individual if we understand their experience of life up until this point. And so when I talk about the whole person, you have to know all of those pieces of that individual to be able to your point, motivate them better or convince them to do the things that they need to do. Um, So, you know, I challenge our coaches a lot to get to know their student athletes as people. And I also challenge our student athletes to get to know one another as people. We do exercises with teams where we'll sit down and ask questions like, you know, did you eat dinner together as a family growing up? And what was your favorite meal? Because suddenly I'm going to learn that you did and you had two parents at home and they both worked until five and and he didn't he only had a single mom living at home or she didn't she only had a single dad or that person was raised by their grandparents and we learn so much about one another with those conversations i think the challenge that we face right now in society is you know we're all behind this all the time talking like this with one another <laughs> so we lack kind of those organic interactions that allow us to get to know the whole person but that is a huge a huge piece of the work that i do no I, you actually you beat me to the next question right like what are some of the things you do from a team building perspective, right? To bring that out. One of the things I love to do with the the teams I work with is uh, two truths and a lie, right? You know, tell me two truths and one lie. We the teammates have to guess, right? And a lot of them are goofy, right? Especially high school kids will say silly stuff. But one time I had a kid who ended up being one of my clients that I got close to. He said, uh, you know, here are two truths and a lie. And one of the truths was he was adopted and none of the kids knew that he was adopted. And he like was willing to share that. And I think that that just sort of opened up like a whole new like world for a lot of the kids to say like, well, I didn't know that about you. Thanks for sharing. And I think those kinds of exercises are just so important to, for them to get to know each other. Forget about athletically, like what's my life like outside of this kind of bubble we, we sit in every day playing baseball or football, basketball, soccer, whatever it is. So I think that's so important, right? If they don't know each other, it's going to be hard to trust each other because they just they don't understand. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head there in terms of trust, right? And being willing to sacrifice for one another. So we talk about these 10 letters and what they mean to you and what you're willing to do to protect them. You're going to be willing to do more to protect them if you're connected to the people around you. And we, I learned an activity in my time at IMG called Least Common Denominator, which is you pair everybody up in the room and then you say, okay, you figure out what you two have in common that you think nobody else has in common with you. And very instantly, you you create kind of this simple bond between those two people. And those two people might have thought they would never get along. They have nothing in common. And suddenly when they realize they have just this one small thing, even if it's the smallest thing in common that nobody else has in common with them, now they're connected to that person forever in that way. So I do, I try and we try and do a lot of work in that regard to kind of create empathy and understanding and build trust within our teams. I love that. I've never, I've never heard that or I've never seen anybody talk about that or do it, but that's amazing. 
amazing, right? Like the ability to have that sort of common bond that you never would have found. I think that's an amazing idea. So I, I love learning from my fellow practitioners in the field. And I, I have to say, I mean, I would imagine that your time at IMG was really uh, valuable in that respect. I know all the people I've ever come across that are either there or have been there. Really, their creativity is off the charts in terms of the things that IMG is able to develop internally in their mental conditioning program. Can you talk about how that experience kind of helped you prepare for you know, being at Louisville? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've been really blessed to have just amazing mentors and colleagues throughout my career um, and just been lucky to be surrounded by a lot of really fantastic people um, and had lots of really great interactions with so many people in our field. I think the uniqueness of a place like IMG is, you know, it's one of the only places where you have this um, group, a large group of individuals um, who are all trying to work towards the same goal, right? So here I'm kind of alone on an island and I have Kate and I have Dr. Peters and and I consult with them and we bounce ideas off of one another. And I have, as I mentioned, friends and colleagues in the field that I'll call and I'll ask questions of, but just the ability to like I shared an office with someone. So the ability to just turn your chair around and say, hey, what do you think about this was really impactful. Uh, And I think also the other really important piece of that experience for me was probably the age group and the varying motives of the student athletes there. And a lot of people don't realize that they think it's this really high level, everybody's high achieving, everybody's a prodigy when they go to IMG. And that's not necessarily the case in at least some of the individual sports. In the team sports, you have to be pretty talented. But in the individual sports, you know, we we would have a tennis player or a golfer who'd never played tennis or golf before, but they needed to go to a boarding school because that's what their family did. And so, you know, you're talking to a group of, of tennis players and one of them just started playing tennis and the other one, you know, has the opportunity to turn professional in a couple of years and maybe skip college. And, and so in that way, I think it sounds strange to people, but we have the same thing here, right? We have varying levels of motives on our teams. And, and that sounds strange, I think, to people when you think power five, like high level division one athletics. But again, if you look at any of our programs where there's an opportunity to play professionally afterwards, some of the people on the team have that goal. Other people on the team maybe don't have that goal. And so that's going to change the way that they're motivated. You know, we take a sport like rowing. Rowing's a really interesting sport at the collegiate level because of the influx of novice rowers. We have some individuals who've never rowed before. They're just fantastic athletes. And so they were recruited to come here to row. So IMG was really helpful for me in that way, not just to be surrounded by colleagues who I could bounce ideas off and thought share with. Absolutely, that's a huge part of it. Um, And there are so many creative minds and just different ways of looking at things and and willingness, I think, to create a safe space, which, you know, Dave Hesse and Taryn Morgan and Angus Mugford and Justin Sua and many of the people who were our leadership um, during my time there did create this safe space where it was okay to throw wrenches and it was okay to challenge one another. So certainly there was that aspect of it. But I think the other aspect was just variety of student athletes that I got to interact with. Do you think the IMG mental performance model of kind of a broader team and kind of a staff is coming to division one athletics i mean do you ultimately think that you'll be in there in five years you'll have you know six eight people on your team because like img sort of led the way on that or do you think it's going to be a harder sell ultimately 
Well, I can tell you from personal experience that it's a harder sell. (laughs) Okay. Because when I first got to Louisville, that was the model we were kind of striving for was to add, you know, several staff in five years. And now here we are five years later without additional staff. And I think the reason it's a bit of a harder sell is money, right? It comes down to where you put your money and how you spend your money. And then it also, the other challenge of it is college athletics moves towards more of a business model. I'm not a very good businesswoman because I came in and I was like, oh, I'm going to do a really good job and they're going to hire me staff. And I think what you find instead is if you do a really good job, they just keep letting you do a really good job by yourself. So it's hard because I know for certain Vince Tyre, our AD, I know he values the work that I do that Kate O'Brien does with our student athletes. So it's not a matter of value and it's not a matter of them not understanding the influence it can have on our student athletes. I think it just, when it's a business model, it comes down to, you know, nickels and dimes. And we've had some things happen in my time here that have sort of made that difficult. But anyway, to answer your question in general, I hope it's the model as we move forward. But I think what it's going to take is, and I'm hoping it's us, I think it's going to take one university doing that and then other people looking around and going, hold on, we need that too. Now, there are certainly some athletic departments that have multiple staff members in terms of clinical and performance. But to my knowledge, at least not yet, there's not anybody that has a whole gaggle or staff of mental performance coaches or performance staff. I'm not aware of that either. It's it's interesting to me that there's a high school level academy that has it, the colleges that are making far more money off of at least the big revenue sports aren't doing it. So I, I just, I'm curious about it. It's a curiosity to me. I don't know the model well enough. We're kind of winding down here. I want to ask you a couple more questions. Are there any books or is there any sort of resources that you recommend to your athletes that you kind of lean on to say, hey, you should read this book or you should take a look at this that you kind of go to on a regular basis? Certainly Syndra's podcast, uh, High Performance Mindset. Um, Justin Sua has a great podcast. There, I mean, I'm going to forget. I've, you know, there are many great podcasts out there. I'm a huge proponent of TED Talks. I think TED Talks are great resources. Um, one right now that I'm kind of pushing on all of our student athletes is Dr. Susan David's TED Talk about emotional agility. Uh, I think Sean Aker's TED Talk on happiness is phenomenal. You know, John Wooden's TED Talk on winning and succeeding is fantastic. Um, in terms of books, I knew you were going to ask me this question. So I actually walked past my bookcase before this. It's so hard for me to choose. It's so hard for me to choose. I think the biggest message here, and I did an interview with Inside Pitch Magazine recently, and I was asked this question and I got totally stumped. And then I think I came up with the right answer. The right answer is there are so many good resources out there, so many good books. Read them, listen to them, and then understand that not every book and not every piece of information in a book or podcast applies to you. You sort of have to learn, okay, based on who I am, what can I take from this and pull from it and apply to me? I have a student athlete here who would smirk if he heard me referencing him, but loves David Goggins. Lots of our coaches, lots of our student athletes love David Goggins. I think he's fantastic, written some great books, very motivational. But he has a very unique path in life. And most of our student athletes didn't grow up in the environment with the circumstances he grew up. And so you have to ask yourself, you know, do I need everything he's telling me or do I just need this piece over here? Right. I mean, David Goggins, for those who are listening that don't know, he's a former Marine and, you know, very, you know, kind of intense. And then you could contrast that to somebody like Dr. Brene Brown, right? Like you can also 
refer somebody who has a very different personality or a very different path to that more of a compassionate, like loving side of things that's maybe somebody else relates a little bit better to. So I I couldn't agree with you more. I I like the question because I think it's really introducing those resources, whether it's books or other things to younger people is a really good way, not only to educate them, but I think it is a great way to build trust to say, hey, you don't have to listen to me. Here, take a look at that and see what you think, right? A lot of times it brings them closer to us because they look at it and they go, wow, this is really interesting. They start to ask questions. And so uh, I think it's really important that we're able to kind of bring that to light and and have them kind of make their own choices. I guess guess the last question I'd ask and we can wrap it up is if there's like one thing that you would suggest to any incoming freshman athlete, you know, at your university or others even, what would you suggest to them? Yeah, and I I know my suggestion. Um, I know it's difficult to do. I want to kind of say that preemptively to anybody who might be listening, but do uncomfortable things, right? Get get used to doing things that you don't love to do. I will ask recruits if I have the opportunity to interact with them, do you do chores? What's your least and you know, what's your least favorite? What's your most favorite chore to do? And then I'll tell them, do your least favorite chore for the next year until you get here, right? Just simple opportunities, whether it's you know introducing plan disruptions and exposure to stressors into your practice, into your individual training, just to kind of increase the demand, get you in that space of working through discomfort. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, I think if we had more time, I think the question I would ask you, which I'm not asking you is, how then, right? How do you get them to buy into that? And how do you get them to do it? Because it's easy to say, right? But if there's no accountability and there's no reward and there's no real reason for them to do it other than taking your word for it, you know, how are we going to get them to do it? That's probably a question for another day. So I'll (laughs) stop there and I'll say thank you so much. This was an amazing discussion. I'm really thankful that you were able to come on and spend some time and talk about this. I think it'll be really helpful to you know the parents and the athletes who are going to have a chance to listen. So thank you again. I, I really had a good time. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks a lot, Vanessa. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Mike Huber is the founder and owner of Follow the Ball Coaching, located in Fairhaven, New Jersey. He is a mental performance coach and business advisor dedicated to serving athletes just like you reach their full potential on and off the court. The Freshman Foundation is all about helping you get to the next level. For more information, follow along on Instagram at The Freshman Foundation. Please subscribe. Give us a like on iTunes, Spotify, leave a review, tell a friend. Most importantly, come back in two weeks ready to get better.